Uh, it is literally why I purposely buy the aisle seat on the plane is because I know at about the two hour mark, I'm going to need to get up and go to the bathroom. The way I will. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Go ahead. No, no, my no, mom, ahead. my mom calls it my TWB, my teeny weeny bladder. <laughs> the way I will yeah. hold my pee forever to not have to get up and go to those bathrooms. No. All right. Hi, everyone. And thanks for coming back. Uh, today's episode is on the movie that embodies what it truly means to believe, The Polar Express. As always, you don't have to watch the movie in order to listen to the episode, but we always recommend it as we will never stray away from spoilers. Today we're going to be talking about why this movie is synonymous with Christmas, but also I think a little bit about Uncanny Valley and why this movie can fall into that category for some people. So, let's get rolling. I'm your host, Audrey. And I'm your co-host, Sheree. So sit back, relax, and please don't silence your phone while we check your cinematic pulse. summary of this film, I think, is simply a young boy on the cusp of no longer believing in Santa Claus is taken on a wild journey that teaches him what it truly means to believe. Yeah. Easy. Easy peasy. It really is. I mean, like you said, how long is this movie script? Okay, it's written incorrectly as far as scripts I mean, written go, in, okay, written but it's condensed but... into 24 pages. Which, for reference, how long is the average movie script? So you typically, most scripts are a di like one page of script is one minute on screen. Okay. So technically so this should average, have about 90 about... pages, but they right, don't write in any of the things that happen in the animation that we don't see. This script is specifically mm -hmm. only dialogue, but for other TV, like for, for anything else, you would be writing in all the action, all the things you don't necessarily have voices like voiceover for or whatever. Right, right. And you would say, like, we see the boy clamber on top of the hobo's back and he sticks his muck, mm -hmm. what are they called, muck sticks, into the snow and braces for, like, the camera pans to the right and they brace for the upcoming hill or something. Like, that's actually how that action should be written. Um you have camera angles and action written together and with um, setting, like interior, exterior, surrounding setting, all of that action. It's very bookish. It's all it's all included. And you're saying that this script does like lacks that significantly. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I think my only frame of reference for like script length is I think I have um, the script of the first episode of Supernatural. And that's it. <laughs> wow. And it's not like not like the first episode script. I just have a copy of it. Um, right. Well, what's nice though is you can thick. find most scripts online nowadays. You just put the mm -hmm. the show, movie, whatever the title is, in PDF, and it's somewhere. Yeah, for those actually, of you who don't know IMDb that, IMDb those... has a, usually has the scripts of films as well. Yeah, though those scripts are for the most part like public, like quote unquote public record. Like if the right. movie's available, the script's available. Mm -hmm. It's not like it's secret or anything. You can and a lot of popular those. movies will also publish them. So like uh, Spider Verse, when it came out, I believe it published its script. Uh, I mean, it, <gasps> really? a lot, a lot of movies that get popular publish their scripts um, for moviegoers to have. Ooh, I actually, want I think A twenty four has been that. publishing all of their scripts like i saw hereditary was online to be bought um interesting it was an advertisement i saw today a24 was publishing their um their scripts i don't want the script of hereditary that would probably haunt i actually want to read it just to like kind of get more of the details behind the film i think it'd be fascinating mm -hmm. no i agree that'd be very interesting to read but like i would like to read it once and then leave it online and exit out of the browser i don't want to own that <laughs> script no cursing me Exactly. Like, we're just going to leave that out in the ether where it belongs and not in my home. I, I I, don't know if I told you this. I had my nail lady watch Hereditary, like, after we talked about it. Because she likes scary movies. And I'm like, okay, you like scary movies? Watch this movie. And she came back and she was like, why did you make me watch that movie? I was up all night. And I'm like, thank you. That's how I felt about it. That's how you get to feel now. That's how I felt. Uh, now right, that's how I felt. It. And you're going to share that feeling with me. 
Um, so back on not scary things on Christmas things. Um, what was so this movie came out in two thousand four? What was your first impression of this movie when it came out? Did you go see it in theaters? I had no intentions of seeing this film ever in my life. In fact, um, really, I think I was very turned off by the. I was a kid, so I didn't know what Uncanny Valley was then. But I think which I too let's was jump awesome. on that. Okay, let's let's jump on Uncanny Valley because I was I was thinking about that because I've had you explain Uncanny Valley to me before. Um, which I grabbed this. So for anybody who doesn't know, and I also didn't know this, the definition from Oxford Dictionary for Uncanny Valley is used in reference to the phenomenon whereby a computer-generated figure or humanoid robot bearing a near-identical resemblance to a human being arouses a sense of unease or revulsion in the person viewing it. Yeah. So, for instance, when you see, like, one of those AI robots and they have, like, a like a plastic human face over it and you're just, like, a little bit weirded out by it because you know it's not human, that a little bit weirded out feeling is Uncanny Valley. Right. It's when it's, it's something that you recognize it, it's supposed to be familiar, and but it's, there's something about it, you know? It's it, offsetting. Yeah. yeah it's it's off a little setting. bit off-putting. Yeah. And, okay, so so continue, because you were mentioning the Uncanny Valley factor. Everyone knows I love animation. Everyone knows it's my favorite art form when it you comes to animation? film. You love animation? I love I animation. I had no idea. You didn't know? I, I, <laughs> I always say and always preach it's the most underrated. Um, what's Studio Ghibli again? Shut your mouth. I've never oh heard of it. God. <laughs> we haven't even gotten to Studio Ghibli yet. so you We just, haven't. Just you um, wait. But I love animation. But even as a kid, I thought the Polar Express just looked weird to me. And Interesting. I I didn't watch it until I was in middle school, and I think in two thousand four. Wait, in two thousand four, I was fifth gradeish. Yeah. So I would have been sixth gradeish. I don't think I watched it till either the end of middle school, like two years later, or maybe early high school. I remember someone buying it for me. It sat in my closet for years. I know exactly where it sat in my closet too, at the very top. And huh. then one one day, I was cleaning my closet out, not like Eminem. And, um, <laughs> and it literally, <laughs> it fell on my head as I was cleaning. And I was like, <laughs> you can't write this. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> I wish I was making this up. And I was like, you know what? I have nothing better to do. Let me just put it. You tell me the flavor. spirit of Christmas literally slapped you in the face. <laughs> sure. Just like the apple to, was it, who discovered gravity? Newton? Yeah, apple phone Sorry, like, just like an apple. I think that's a. I think that's a myth. I don't care if it's uh, a myth. We're we're going with it. But yeah, Johnny Appleseed. Anyway, Johnny. Nope, not wrong person. <laughs> I know. I'm I'm talking he about local creatures and people and things. What? Um, so so, I so. was cleaning my room, put it on in the background, and then I somehow sat there and got through the whole movie, thinking, "Oh my gosh, this is now my new favorite movie." And I tried, tried so so hard. To not let it be my favorite Christmas movie, but in in the past 10 years, I'm like, it's absolutely my favorite Christmas movie. I cannot deny it. What's also nice is, like I said, again, I immediately fell in love with the movie. And I think the reason I fell in love with it is because the conductor on the Polar Express 100,000% looks like my fourth grade teacher, who was one of my favorite teachers of all time. I'm not going to name names. Your fourth grade teacher looked like Tom Hanks? Looked just like the conductor. I mean, his (laughs) hair was the same glasses mustache when i see the conductor i just think of my fourth grade teacher i'm like even like even his persona like the hot and cold kind of just like my teacher because my teacher most of the time when we weren't acting up he was amazing when we were acting up he was not happy with us (laughs) i feel like that okay like you ever like run across a person you're like you're a caricature i've definitely run into you as an entity before Mm -hmm. i definitely feel that about that kind of character because you know who also exists in almost that exact character with that exact appearance the cranky math teacher in the incredibles (gasps) yeah (laughs) with the big old rounded glasses yes i think like and just a little ribbon of hair and the mustache Uh uh-huh yep the i think not yep yep but i think that's what that really captured my love for the film when i first saw it was i just that person i couldn't untie the conductor to my teacher and i was like Mm, i think that's why mm -hmm. i fell in love with it so much because even again the mannerisms the way he speaks the lessons he learned he teaches to the kids is very teacher-like and it reminded me 100 percent of my fourth grade teacher and i 
I think that's why I fell in love with it. But over the years, I fall in love with it more because one, I love the message of the film and I specifically mm-hmm. love the hobo. I know. Strange. Which we're going to get to talking about the hobo for sure. It's in my notes. Don't you worry. But as an adult and again, someone who's who can now enjoy film on deeper levels. Good grief. This film go. This film was way ahead of its time, even if the Uncanny Valley is still there. But I think way ahead of its time. That's something nice, too, about this film over the years is that you the Uncanny Valley you can get past. Because it's so mm-hmm. old now that it doesn't actually look too terrible. I notice it That's mostly it. in their I eyes agree. and their cheeks, which is, of course, mm-hmm. where people usually notice it. But right. I'm so mm-hmm. enthralled by, like, what's happening in this film at this point that I really don't look at the Uncanny Valley anymore. I don't care about it. I care about this film. I totally agree. Because um, I was thinking about that because this movie is back in 2004. So mm-hmm. in 2004, when you watched this, you were either going to ignore the Uncanny Valley factor completely and just like it. And, and just enjoy it for a movie, or you were going to get completely turned off by it. But now, now that it's 2023, you can just look at this movie and just write it off as old animation and right. not be as weirded out by it. Right. You know, you can, your brain just kind of looks at it and just like, ah, oh, the movie's old, whatever, and you just ignore it. Okay, so my first impression of the movie, I distinctly remember going to the movies to see this around Christmas time as a kid. Um... And I really liked it. I felt like it was very magical and very mysterious. Yeah. I would have been, let's see, Christmas 2004, I would have been in fifth grade. Yeah, would have been in fifth grade. This movie, um, before you continue, if you watch this film, and this thing is too, when you watch this film, especially now, I remember it was supposed to be this big 3D spectacular. And when I keep that in mind when I watch this film and look for certain moments in this film, it definitely was mm, made The 3D for, moments? Yeah. And the 3D moments are actually aren't bad. I just, I never no, watched it in not. 3D because it was weird to me and it hurts my eyes. I think you and I have I talked can't... about that before. Yeah, because you and I are on the same page about that because, um, because I have a depth perception problem in my mm. left eye. Um, and my left eye only, I really can't, like, my eyes really can't process 3D movies. Um, and I feel like that's the best way to say that because when I was younger, I used to say, like, I can't see in 3D. Like, just watching movies, I would say, I can't see in 3D movies. Like, you can't see in 3D. What, is, what does life look like to you? Does life look like animation? Like, children being children. Right, and I'm like, right. okay, we live in 4D, but okay. <laughs> nice try. Uh, nice try, idiot. Um, that's 10-year-old me speaking to someone. Um, but no, so I never saw this movie in 3D either because I just, my eyes can't process watching 3D films because of my left eye. Um, so yeah, I only ever watched this movie just flat and I, and I remember going to see it with my family and I remember, like I said, I remember liking it. I remember it being magical and mysterious and, and just very, very nice, um, but I don't think I really liked, liked this movie. I, I definitely didn't have any sort of uncanny valley factor. I wasn't, like, turned off by the animation at all. In right. fact, I, re- I think I remember really liking it. Um, but You also got to remember, did, too, we're still in early animation in 2004. We're still in very oh, early we'll get animation. to that. Mm-hmm. Very early animation. Um, we'll, we'll talk about what the production style of this movie was. Um, but I don't think I, like, jumped on this movie until later um my family for a little bit had a uh tradition that on christmas eve we would drive around and look at christmas lights um and listen to we would listen to the veggie tale christmas party cd (laughs) okay do you know what i'm talking about no i did not grow up veggie tales all my friends did was not part of my life we, I mean, like, we grew up on VeggieTales. You know, it's one of those, like, it, they're, like, yes, they're religious, but they, they also were played in, like, you know, secular schools and daycares and stuff because they, right. they taught kids lessons, right. um, you know, about how to treat other people and stuff. So we definitely grew up on VeggieTales. And there's, um, there's a VeggieTales, like, Christmas movie with Buzzsaw Louie. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the VeggieTales Christmas party where, um, ve- like, the characters got together and sang classic christmas songs um like ring bells go ting-a-ling-a-ling like the old christmas mm-hmm. songs um and so we would drive around and listen to christmas light listen to christmas lights we would look at christmas lights and listen to the veggie tales christmas party cd and um and then when we got home my 
mom would would make hot cocoa and we would get to open one Christmas present. And then my mom said, like, do you guys want to watch a Christmas movie or something? What Christmas movie should we watch? And my sister was like, we should watch the Polar Express. And I was like, that is so random. Why would you like, okay, like, yeah, okay, it's a, it's a good movie. But like, to me at the time, the Polar Express was a very serious movie. Like it's serious factor outweighed its magical factor to mm-hmm. me at Which that I age. Don't, and, I don't mind, obviously. But at that age, that would not have been the movie that I picked to watch on Christmas Eve. I don't know what movie I would have picked, but it wouldn't have been Polar Express. Um, and I probably would have picked like one of the old stop motion movies like the Rudolph Red-Nosed Reindeer or Christmas Without a Santa Claus. And but my sister was like, let's watch it. And I was like, I don't really want to watch that. That's too serious. It's Christmas Eve and Christmas Eve is fun. But then... Like, later on in life when I found myself, like, experiencing Christmases alone or away from my family, I was looking for a New Year, or a New Year's, a Christmas Eve tradition, and all of a sudden my sister popped into my head, like, my young little, like, fourth grade sister going, let's watch Polar Express, and I'm like, that sounds great as an adult. I'm like, that sounds wonderful. That sounds magical and like setting the perfect tone for like the mystery that is Christmas Eve and waking up with presents under the tree. Absolutely. So for like the past, I want to say like five years or so, I have watched the Polar Express every year on Christmas Eve with my husband. In fact... And, like, Wes has adopted their tradition and loves it. Um, I was – because, I obviously, I had to watch it again for this podcast and not on Christmas Eve. And I asked Wes if he wanted to watch it with me. And he's like, eh, it feels wrong not to be watching the Polar Express on Christmas Eve. He's like, no, I don't want to watch it with you. I don't want to ruin it. I'll, I'll right. watch it with that's you cute. and we watch it again on Christmas Eve. But he's like, no, that's our Christmas Eve tradition. That's cute. So – like, I, I think I really appreciate this movie so much more for what it is as an adult. You know what? And I think that brings me to a question that I had for you. We'll, we'll talk about the, the preface of this, but um, let me ask you the question about the preface of this. Given the elements of the movie, what decade do you think this movie is depicting or taking place in? I would say somewhere in the 80s. So I think it's actually older than that. I think this movie takes place in about the 60s, either the 50s or 60s. Um, There's a few cues to that. Um, For instance, uh, like the Christmas display in the department store that they pass is all like animatronic, like it's all wind up dolls. Um, which is how traditional Christmas displays were in, like, the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, the nice and naughty kid TVs in, um, like, Santa's office or whatever that the elves are monitoring, those are all black and white. Um, right. which I don't remember when color TV came about, but it was, it was 50s. a very old, it's an old thing. Yeah. 54 so, Don't quote me on that. It's just ringing bells. All of the Christmas songs that are playing in the North Pole are all like 40s, 50s, and 60s renditions of them. Um, like it's all like old Burl Ive songs and old like 40s. Frank um, Sinatra. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the like the the biggest one for me is a really really small one and it's um the boy the main character who doesn't have a name we'll get to that later hero boy the boy hero boy um is wearing Roy Rogers slippers which Roy Rogers was like a kids western show from the 50s okay so so my guess is this probably, given the kid's age, that he's wearing Roy Rogers slippers and all of the aforementioned details, I think this movie probably takes place in the 50s. Also, the cars are a giveaway, too. Um, and, like, the the nerdy kid's glasses and everything, a lot of this just screams 50s. But it's all really subtle, you know? Like, this could almost it's take timeless. place in a number of decades. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, so... Until we start given... having flying cars, and then it's definitely timed. <laughs> So, given the potential time period that this movie is based in, thinking about how you and I kind of didn't like this movie as avidly until we were old enough to appreciate it, who do you think was the intended audience of this film? 
Um, you know what? I don't think it had an intended audience. I think it was supposed to be visual spectacle. I think it was supposed to be families. So I'm thinking about this movie and I'm thinking about, because this movie was made in 2004 and yet it depicts kids from the 1950s. And which is, you know, going to be a, a time period that's completely foreign to children watching this now, but it's not going to be foreign to their parents and or their grandparents I, or their grandparents. And I think that a good movie, especially an, an animated movie that would be presumed to be geared towards children uh, is done well when there's something in it that adults can appreciate. Yeah. And and I mean, like, there's varying levels of that. You know, you have a movie like Shrek, which we'll talk about. Absolutely, we got a request for Shrek. Um, Some. We have a no. movie like that. <laughs> <laughs> Plot twist, that's what this episode's about. No. Um, wouldn't that, yeah, movie, sorry, wouldn't that be funny? <laughs> I feel so like funny. that would be mean. That would be mean to the Polar Express, but I would never. Hilarious. The Polar Express definitely beats out Shrek for me. Uh it, given given the Christmas season, yes. Um, oh, I mean any time. But the, no, you have you have a movie like that where you know kids can enjoy it, but there is a whole slew of adult themed humor that it that can make an <laughs> yes. adult taking their kid to go see the movie enjoy the movie on their own scale. But yet the joke completely goes over the kid's head. There's that end that can be talked about. But this is on a different level of that where I think that this movie is serious enough where a, a kid can enjoy it, um, especially kids who do believe in Santa Claus, kids who have maybe recently stopped believing in Santa Claus. You know, we're like kind of the age group that you and I would have been in just, you know, just a few years prior we believed in Santa. But at the time we were seeing this movie, definitely not. This movie? But I also... Go ahead. Sorry. I also think that there's an element of this that for parents even, you know, grown-ups like me, you know, me as an adult, I'm watching this going like, man, I don't believe in magic this much anymore and I should. You yeah, know, especially movie, as a creative and as a writer. This movie 100% revitalized my love for Christmas over and over and over again. Every time right? I watch this film, especially, okay, now hear me out cuz I was watching this on the plane today. We'll always hear you out. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> The the end of the film where Santa is going the on dasher on dancer and you know dash away dash away dash away all right and then he you know he zooms out in color and all these beautiful little this, this oh so visually color. powerful and then the little twinkles the sound of the twinkle I'm getting goosebumps saying it the twinkling sounds as they fall towards the crowd something about like that it was like scene. the fading away of bells yeah this this and it's just quiet. And I love so I much love that, that Robert Zemeckis made that moment quiet. It's so mm-hmm. powerful. And it lets the magic just rinse over your body. And every time, yes. again, talking about the scene, I have the goosebumps talking about the scene. Me too. It is such a magical scene. And every time I watch this scene, I think I was talking to Stephanie on the phone the other day. And she's like, hold on, it's the moment. That scene is so powerful. Every time I watch it, it just makes me, oh, it reminds me how much I love Christmas because it's, it's a magical moment. It's so magical. It's, it is like the combination of what I was talking about. It's like the combination of that, of magical and mysterious, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. of, of letting that magic hover and just being, having, having it impressed upon you that, that like the gravity of that magic and that's where you have this, like, the the meeting of the Venn diagram of magical and mysterious. And in the middle is the Polar Express. And, and this Which is it, where it, I, I You can't appreciate till you're an adult. Right. And this is where I say again, the movie was well before its time. Way, mm-hmm. way before its time. Because as an adult, it's the small... Like, Robert Zemeckis only throws in a couple of lines that are really important. Because a lot of it is just like dialogue between example. kids. Huh? Like what? Like what? Give me an example so, of like throw in dialogue there's pieces. There's a moment. It's uh, when our hero meets the hobo for the first time and they're about to go off to find the hero girl and give her her ticket. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, he asks him, what's your impression on the big man since you brought him up? And they have that mm-hmm. little talk and whatever. And the hero boy says, so what about this trade? And the hobo says, what about it? 
well, this is really going to the North Pole, right? And he says, are we? It's these little moments. And then he asks, do you believe in ghosts? When I was an adult. Ugh. And that the, the, that the, again, the, weight, the mysterious factor, right? The weight of that question. And then you watch the film. It, 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 I can't even put in words how important that line was. Do you believe in ghosts? And he which, shakes okay, his head. Are we going to jump on the hobo? Head, no. Are we going to talk about that? We might as well. Cause he's the, he's Let's the just most compelling character. I have so much to say about this character because it's so well-written. He's the which most is, which important is interesting. character in this film. So what do you, so my, my question for you about the character of the hobo is what do you feel he represents in this movie? To me, he represents all the boy's doubts. He is the personification yes. of all of his doubts. But he's also there to make him think critically and be like, in a, in a sense, because this is obviously all magic, right? This is all magic, right. quote unquote. But he's there to represent his doubts, but also make him kind of make him move forward into believing if it's real or if it's not. He's he is the boy's antagonist in a way. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, exactly. Um, I have very similar thoughts on this. I'm going to talk about this from a musical standpoint, um, which is interesting. And of course, I'm going to tackle it from this angle. Um because when we when Hero Boy gets up on top of the train, um, which is just such an interesting way to have him traverse the train. Like, why aren't we just <laughs> I having wrote him in my go notes, from car to car? That's what I wrote in my notes. Because that wouldn't be interesting, magical, or adventurous, okay? And it wouldn't make for great cinematic storytelling. <laughs> it wouldn't be visually stunning. It wouldn't be visually stunning unless you were having him go through like each car was like a facet of his doubt of Christmas. But I feel like that would be too trippy. It'd be way too much. That'd be too much, right? It, you have to I have, want it, that, have some I want like, that bre- version like, of Robert levity. Zemeckis. Do a new version for adults. Like, give me like an adult Polar Express, right? I'll get on Can the we train. have an adult Polar Express where we're not not a kid is boarding the Polar Express, but an adult, an adult when who I has tell lost you, the magic I of Christmas. A concept script for that like a couple years ago i kid you not is this gonna be like our cinematic debut are we gonna write christmas movie rewrites because last week we were rewriting miracle on 34th street for 2023 are we writing an adult polar express now because i'm so on board with this i'm so Pun on board very much intended it. i'm so on board for it when i, I keep all aboard for this idea i thought about this is one of those moments in life where i spent like four months not sleeping and just laying in bed thinking about how would i redo the polar express as an adult please let's do this i vote that this is like our our first like movie project together yeah. let's let's write this script i'm so down mm-hmm. um okay back on what i was talking about <laughs> not to get Side, derailed sidebar <laughs> ah! <laughs> oh i love you okay so talking so think about the hobo's character like i said i wanted to tackle him from a musical standpoint because from when the hero boy gets up on top of the train, we see him and he's playing an instrument. That instrument, I don't know if you know this or not, and most people probably don't, is called a hurdy-gurdy. Yes, I did, because when I tell you I looked that up the first time I saw him playing that, what is that? Right. So, yeah, it's like a combination of, like, an accordion and a guitar and a violin, like, all together um, is what this hurdy-gurdy is. And... Again, this bounces back to the time period. There's a song that we know the word hurdy-gurdy from. And it's a song by Donovan, which is from the 60s. Um, which I know you've heard it because I know you've seen Zodiac with Jake Galifianakis. Yes. Um, not Jake Galifianakis. Jake Gyllenhaal? <laughs> that would be Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, that would be an interesting movie if Zach Galifianakis is in that movie. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Jake Gyllenhaal. And the, like, the theme song of that movie is The Hurdy-Gurdy Man by Donovan. Um, and it's, like, really weird and haunting. It's the hurdy-gurdy, hurdy-gurdy, hurdy-gurdy mm-hmm. he sang, right? Really weird. Wes sings it all the time. And I'm like, are you going to murder me in my sleep? Um, but anyway, song from <laughs> that time period that we're talking about. Um, leave me alone. Uh, or check on Wesley. I don't know. One of the two. So... <laughs> Um, I'm like, 
what in the world is a hurdy-gurdy man, okay? So I did some research um, because, again, him playing that we, – we talk about this all the time. It's like one of our catchphrases. Nothing is ever done by accident in film. Mm-hmm. Right? They picked They picked an instrument. They could have picked anything. He could have had a guitar. He could have had a regular old accordion. He could have had a harmonica because he's he a hobo on a train and that would have made sense. He could have had spoons. No, he had a freaking hurdy-gurdy. So why? Why did he have this instrument? So um, in an article from the American songwriter, Hurdy-Gurdy Man, the song by Donovan, um, the hurdy-gurdy man is like a bard. The hurdy-gurdy man is any singer-songwriter in any age, whether they were in Ireland or whether they were in the streets of New York during the 60s. Songwriters tend to look for a world that will improve. The singing of songs for a better world that can be seen in any age. So the hurdy-gurdy man, to to condense all that, the hurdy-gurdy man is a storyteller and a guide. And I think think that is what this hobo character is supposed to represent for the hero boy. He is kind of a storyteller and a guide, though I think one who employs something more of akin to reverse psychology on hero boy than traditional helpfulness. Um, Critical thinking. You know, Right, because he says, because he, because I He never answers his questions. He makes, he asks Mm -mm. the question back to him. Which right. is frustrating, and but I, also a great way to make people think. It's Socratic method is what mm-hmm. that is. And I love the Socratic method in many instances, though not always. Um, <laughs> I know what you're I, referencing, but no one else does. Side, sidebar. Um, sidebar. Uh, the Socratic method is a method of teaching that is based on the idea that you have all of the information you will ever need. You simply need someone to ask you critical thinking questions to guide your mind to the answer. And that's what the Socratic method is. It is very helpful in the classroom because you need to form those neural pathways of connecting information rather than just somebody handing you or spoon feeding you information. You don't learn and you don't retain information that well. Almost no one does. Most people require some method of critical thinking and the Socratic method works really well for that. You guide your pupil to an answer by making them think for themselves and connect the dot for themselves. But... You have to be good at doing the Socratic method to actually do that effectively. Um, So anyway, I have a a love-hate relationship with the Socratic method. But that's kind of what this character is. And I I fully agree with you that I think he's supposed to be kind of a mirror character for the boy. I want to point out a small detail. Uh, Very small. Do you remember what size his shoe was? What did he say? Size 11? No. What did he say? 13. That's a big now, shoe. No, no, no. We'll think about it. What does the number 13 represent? Shoe. I don't know, man. Tell me. Unlucky? Unlucky. Suspicion. Mm. The number 13 Again, isn't an accident. accident. I never caught... Well, I think I have caught that before, but I haven't watched this movie in a year or two. And again... It's a big shoe. It's a big shoe, but the number 13 wasn't an accident. What size shoe does Tom Hanks wear? I don't think it's a 13. Let me tell you that. Let's go find out. I don't think his feet are that big. Hold on. I want to go find out. He's a shoe size 11. Okay. So no, 13 is intentional. 13 is intentional. I was going to laugh if it was an Easter egg for Tom Hanks' shoe size because Tom Hanks voices the hobo. Like he voices most of the characters in this movie. Not only does he voice five characters, he is the physical movement of the hero boy at times. Oh, well, okay, we'll, we'll get there. Don't, Again, don't, we're jumping into don't jump, production. Don't jump on, yes. But the thing is, we've um, already into our 40th, 43rd minute. No! We spent 10 minutes I gotta, talking to I gotta cut out about 6 to 8 minutes anyway, so we're good. Oh my gosh. We could talk about this movie for so long. Um, and people wonder how we had three episodes of The Batman. <laughs> we could have three episodes of The Polar Express. Polar Express is definitely one two. we could revisit. Um, so... Like I said, I, th- I think I completely agree with you that he is supposed to be a mirror character. Um, I think that he is supposed to be the manifestation of the boy's doubts at the mm-hmm. time um, in a way that he kind of plays devil's advocate and right. voices his doubts. Um, but it's he does so, like I, like I said, in kind of an antagonistic and ironic way, he says, you know, he, he voices what the boy is thinking right now with it, not 
you know, believing is seeing, it's seeing is believing. Um, and he, I, I feel like the, the hobo is supposed to represent someone who has, and in this case, it's like a, you know, eight-year-old boy. I, I feel like he's supposed to represent someone who has no station to speak with authority on things and yet does so anyway. Right. Um, like when you meet him, he says like, I'm the king of the pole X. I'm the king of the North Pole. Right. And, and telling him, uh, you know, keep your valuables in your shoe. But if you notice his shoe has a big hole in it. Right. Why would you keep your valuables in something that's going to fall out? But again, mirror of the character, his valuables are kept in his shoe and the boy keeps putting valuable things in his pocket that has a hole in it. Correct. So... I, again, I think he, I think he's supposed to be a mirror for the boy where we're suppo- he's supposed to be like a foil to him almost of how can you claim there is no Santa Claus? You're seven. You haven't seen everything yet. You don't even know what you don't know. And, and like he's he's saying, hey, kid, by the way, you know, he's saying seeing is believing. Do you believe in ghosts? And the kid's like, uh-uh. And he just goes, interesting. And we... We know that he is. We know that he's a ghost. He, like, basically right. tells us as much later. What I find And disappears into snow multiple times. And we're, we're in between characters and casting, but the older I've gotten, the more I've thought it's not an accident Tom Hanks played so many characters in this film because I think Tom Hanks is playing a representation of the boy in many different ways. So he obviously, mm-hmm. again, he's done, he does some of the physical movements. Actually, he does a lot of the physical movements um, for the hero boy. He's the hobo. He's Santa. He's the dad. He's the conductor. Um, Mm -hmm. If you think about it, the boy goes on a journey of each of those characters where his dad, he instilled, like the dad, Santa, or Tom X plays the dad. At the beginning of the film, he's like, oh, Santa's real? Yeah. He just wants his kid to believe it. But he knows. Mm -hmm. The dad's like, Santa's not real. Well, he doesn't think Santa's real anymore. Right. I'm Santa. And then the boy meets the hobo. Who is also Tom Hanks. And that's where, you can, again, the mirror, the, the the personification of his doubt, his antagonist, but also mm-hmm. his, his, his teacher, his guide. And he's also, at this point, met the conductor. The conductor obviously believes in Santa. He believes in... He, he also says at the end, you know, you know, the boy's about to say, oh, it says b- believe. But he, he gets thought because the conductor says, that's not something I need to know. He knows. Mm-hmm. The conductor also tells him... <sighs> so magical. You know, I almost fell off this train. I re- I took my hand out to reach an iron hook or whatever he said. I don't remember what he said. And yeah, he says, and it <clears throat> gave way. Yeah, it gave way. But something caught me. And we're led to believe it could be the hobo. The hobo's the mm-hmm. angel of the train, if you will. But he said, mm-hmm. you know, some of the things, some of the most real things we say, some of the most real things in this world are the things we can't see. And then he finally mm-hmm. meets Santa, also played by Tom Hanks. And we oh, finally get to the end of Tom his Hanks train. had the perfect Santa voice. <laughs> Tom Hanks is just perfect. Okay, Tom Hanks is the yes, reason I wanted is. to become an actor. Um, Aww. Yeah, yeah, he's really. so nice too. My family has met him in real life. I was not there, sadly, and he is like an angelic human being. I believe it. He is the dad of America. He's America's dad. Um, but you know, and then finally, a hero boy gets to the end of his journey. He meets Santa and he believes, right? And then he gets home, and finally, he's gone on this whole circle. And Tom Hanks has played all these characters. He's he's got he's done this revolution, if you will, from undoubtful, unbelieving to believing and believing through his life. Right? He went mm-hmm. on this evolution in the character and the acting. I don't think it's an accident at this point that Tom Hanks played all these characters. I think it's almost method acting to a point. Like they're all supposed to represent his different state. That character is right. different stages of belief. A hundred percent. I love it. I love it. I completely agree. I think that's a great analysis of why Tom Hanks is playing so many people. Because it's it's not to showcase, like, his ability to, to voice act, although he definitely did a fantastic job in the voice acting of this. Right. But, you know, he doesn't and sound like no. a... <laughs> right, and tap dancing, right? Hot chocolate. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't think that it's done just to showcase the actor. I think it was done with intention to link... All of those characters right. together. It's the journey. Um, aside for the uh, the other conductor guy, who just screams because his beard is being pulled. That's also played by Tom Hanks, isn't he? No, Michael Jeter. 
Michael Jeter plays both. No, 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 no. Wait. Yeah. Oh no, you're right. Michael Jeter plays both you're of right. those. Can uh, both of the yeah the drivers of the train. Okay. All right, good because that would have been like a one off. I'm like, no, I don't like that. This is a sidebar on this film that I want to bring up. Go ahead. I love the cinematics of the train ride on the ice. It's so good. It is directed like what part of the cinematics? Animated. Oh my gosh, the movement. Just the way it is filmed, the way it is better choreographed, in my opinion, the most chase scenes you see in any film ever. I love it. I love Period. that that's your opinion of it, too. That makes me so happy. The way, again, the way it's filmed, the ca- like they have the camera down by the track, not the tracks, the, um, what the heck are those? The wheels? Yeah. Sure. The wheels. The wheels on the train. On the ice, and the the ice cracking is kind of weird looking. I don't really like how that looks. But just the cinematics of that scene are so wonderful. Not Glacier Gulch and that weird 3D up and down. I hate it. I usually skip it. Mm? It's weird. Oh, you mean like the roller coaster part? Yeah, it's dumb. That's obviously for 3D. Also, I don't want to talk about how Tom Hanks scream and just gets cut off the wrong point. If you want me to ruin a moment for you. But oh, of course you notice something like that. I, I watched that. this film so don't many tell times. Me. I'm so sorry. Um, I'll keep out all the other things I noticed because I don't want to ruin the film. Um, Appreciate you. But that scene is one of my favorites and I watch it again and again and again because it is cinematically so good. I love, again, how they move the camera to move with the train and the wheels above the ice. I love that you see where the train falls on the ice onto the tracks and up. Uh, the way that uh, it's just so, so good. I cannot explain in words why I love it so much, but I hope everyone else can watch this scene and li- love it as critically as I do. It's one of my favorite scenes in the film. I feel like I'm I'm not going to understand, but I'm going to appreciate it more when we watch this again on on Christmas Eve. Just I'll watch that scene it more, and it appreciate is... the cinematics of that scene and the movement and the camera work. Also, I the camera, there's so many moments of camera work in this film where I'm like, good God, it was so b- before it's time. Like the part like in- where like the locomotive like swings across the camera uh, and then the camera just pans the other way. Favorite. Love that. I that I did notice. And it's 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 dizzying, but it's also dynamic. And like it really gives you like the sense of the careening urgency. Oh, yeah. Of this train and on the, the music? ice. The, there's a, there's several camera things and editing points in this Alan film. Alan Silvestri really knocked it out of the park it on is, this soundtrack, you, man. I listen which, to just the soundtrack we, sometimes. Hold on, no, no, no. I have I, it also on my phone. Before we get there, before we get to music, let me keep talking about the moments <laughs> I loved. Hold on. The, it, early in the film, other little cool like film moments in this in this movie. When Sister Sarah is being brought to bed at the beginning, we see our hero boy Sister looking through Sarah. the keyhole, right? And the camera right. is mm-hmm. looking at him through the keyhole. And then the camera moves through the keyhole. Woo! Of course it does, because it's a keyhole. You have to have a camera move through the keyhole moment. It's it's required. So good. So good. And then again, like like maybe a minute later, the boy gets out his encyclopedia on the North Pole or something. Mm-hmm. And right. then you see the Barren camera wasteland devoid, devoid of, life. of life. And you see the camera move through the page and then it's clear. Oh, if that happens at least two other times in this film where we move through a solid object and look through it as if it were clear, as if we were underneath it or behind it. We love he, when stuff does that, though. Because I've love, noticed you saying that in other movies, like when we like move through the set, like in um, Inglorious Bastards, when we move through the floor to the family cowering underneath, you love that moment. I love good camera work, man. I love great editing. I know you do. I love creative shots. I love creative You love good shots. lighting, too, which, mm-hmm. okay, on production, can we talk about, like, the, the lighting, ren- like, rendering in this? Because they did a great job. Except for on their eyeballs, yes. Okay, but forget the eyeballs. You know what they focused <laughs> on, though? You know what they focused on? They focused on hair. Mm-hmm. Do you, for lighting, no. they focused on hair. Mm-hmm. And the hair animation was way ahead of its time for 2004 way ahead of its time because you have to think about like i'm thinking about this in terms of brave okay which brave i think won animation awards for the animation of merida's hair oh yeah because it was the first it was the first disney character 
who had had who had curly hair like that mm-hmm. and the animators literally animated every single curl yeah. on her head individually now after that and you i can think tell. it was after brave where monsters university came out and they basically did the same thing mm, for sully, sully. <sighs> mm-hmm. they i don't, I don't think it was lot. monsters university i think it was monsters inc no 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 i might have been both to actually animate every hair but his hair is more defined in Monsters University. Well, that came out when we were in college. Right. That's what I meant to say, because Monsters University came after Brave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Now I'm tracking with you then. Um, but so just animation-wise, they they really focused on hair because it is so hard to animate to be lifelike. Mm-hmm. And the lighting on the hair, because you have to think about, like, if you ever, if you ever touched, like, little kid hair, their little kid hair is so different than, like, teenage hair and then adult hair and then, like, old, like, your hair changes as you age. Um, and as your, your hair changes as you age. And little kid hair is so fine and soft and does not hold style or anything. And it's just, it is like silk. And if you look at the way the lighting hits, like specifically Billy's hair, his hair is almost like angelic with how the light is like shining and reflecting off of it. But it like if you're thinking about a kid in real life with that kind of hair at that age and in that kind of lighting, that is how it would look. They do such a good job with that. Um, We won't talk about the eyeballs. (laughs) Which... Okay, but actually, I do kind of want to bring that up because I have I have a friend who specifically was like, I don't I don't like this movie. I've never liked this movie, and so I was like, I wanted to re- I wanted to reach out to her, and I'm like, okay, can you explain to me why you're not a fan of this movie? And she specifically said like the animation for her is unsettling. Yeah, this movie it is definitely for a lot of people. landed. This this movie definitely landed in Uncanny Valley for her. And she said, every everyone is so lifeless, even though their voices are not. Um, this is exactly there, why she said, I do not like the new Lion King. The voices are uh-huh. great, save for one who I will not mention. Um, <laughs> but there's like the there's no emotion in their faces. We don't we can't. We can't... That was her problem, too. She yeah. said their eyes were lifeless. That's exactly why this movie panned for a lot of critics when it came out, because of the Uncanny Valley. I think I wasn't looking at their eyes, because I don't look at people's eyes when they talk. I look at their mouths. Yeah. So I think when these characters are talking, I'm focused on their mouths anyway, so the eyes didn't bug me. And also now I'm, you know, watching this as an adult, and I've written it off as old animation, so it still yeah. doesn't bother me. Right. Same. I can get past the 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 facial movements or lack thereof. The eyes I try not to look at. <laughs> I will say, the I mean, it's, facial it's movements the... are hard to animate anyway right. because well, let's talk about production since we're kind of in there already. This movie is was the first movie according to an article in the Bird Theater. This movie was the first movie ever to be entirely done with motion capture. Hundred percent correct. And, like, so I know you guys know that we've talked about motion capture before, but if you're unfamiliar or don't remember, mocap is commonly referred to as mocap is when an, an actor suits up in a suit that a computer then reads all of the actions that they embody and then superimposes them onto a pre-generated computerized character. So, like, Tom Hanks is acting out the conductor's actions, and then they impose his actions via computer generation onto the character of the conductor. And so that's why those actions can seem so lifelike, is because they're being acted out like a human. Mm -hmm. But... In 2004, this technology was very limited. You know, we were in just the very early stages of it. And so their actions actually had to be very hyperdramatic and overly theatrical so that the computer could fully grasp all of their bodily motions. Because, again, this is 2004. We're still working with, like, low-key dial-up here. (laughs) And... Like, think about that for a second. Think about a movie being made like this with mocap when dial-up was still very much a thing. Thankfully, I know for a fact, I think we still had dial-up in fourth grade. I think I still had it in third or fourth grade. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, just let that sink in. Um, Some people are like, what's dial-up? Dial-up. 
Y'all uh, don't want to know. Is you guys the are song that gives Earth song. Dial-up is the sound that gives millennials anxiety. Um, right. I can't even like make the noise because it is so Horrendous. computerized. I can't. I can't do it for you. But there is a noise exclusively associated with dial-up internet, and if you YouTube it. You will then know what we're talking about. It's, I'm sure it's, everyone's it's, heard it's it horrendous. on like a TikTok soundbite at some point. <laughs> yeah, um, it it definitely, definitely is there. Um, so yeah, but I mean, like, because I was thinking about this and I'm watching this movie and I'm like, you know what? For all of like the flaws or shortcomings of this animation style, I feel like they were shooting for a particular style of animation. Like they they wanted an overall look mm-hmm. for this movie. And because we, you know, we had animated movies back then, computer animated movies, and they looked different than this. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, so I think, to me, this movie reminds me of some of those classic Christmas paintings, like, like Christmas paintings by, like, Nikki Bohem and, like, Thomas Kincaid. Mm-hmm. Those old Christmas paintings. That's what the overall aesthetic of this movie screams to me. Does it not? Am I crazy here? No. I feel like that's what this movie looks like. It's one of those old I Christmas paintings. I think the feeling of the film also kind of represents that. At least when he's not in mm-hmm. the magical world, it feels more like like when he's at home, it definitely feels more like one of those paintings. Yes, I 100% agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? Um, that's kind of the whole the vibe that I got from this. And I like those paintings, too. I grew up with my mom too. liking those kinds of paintings and liking that kind of decor and artwork. And now I like it, too. Um, I have a question. And I feel like that's the vibe that they went for. You said you have a question? Yeah, actually I actually have a couple, but I'm going to ask one more, like, serious question. Okay. What are your thoughts on the music? And how lovely is it? <laughs> I mean, do do we want to remind our audiences what else Alan Silvestri has composed? Let's talk about, like, the big one everyone knows, at least. <coughs> everyone the should Avengers? know. The Avengers? The Avengers. He also did, um, dun, 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 dun. good grief, he's done so much. He's done a lot of stuff in Disney. He's right. done, he he's do done Harry so Potter? much, but like specifically this dude has the Avengers under his belt mm-hmm. as iconic soundtracks mm-hmm. and he, so he's good. He is good. This man is a great composer. I love Alan Silvestri and this, this soundtrack to me is like synonymous with Christmas. It is a hundred percent what I when I point, think of magical theatrical music for Christmas, this is what comes in my head is the suite from the Polar Express. Didn't I just send you something recently too where I was like, listen to this song and tell me you don't you absolutely think did. Christmas yep. music? What did I send you? It was something from um it was something from Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Yeah, it was just a few weeks ago. Yeah, it was just a few weeks ago because, and that's a completely different, um, that's a completely different composer, 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 that is James Newton Howard, who we also love. Right. Um, but there's, I think it's the Close Friends song. You said, I'm and I quote, to it. listen to the song, A Close Friend from the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them soundtrack and tell me, does it not sound like Christmas music, specifically Polar Express? Right? You Everyone go to listen to that December song right 9th. now. <laughs> everyone go listen to a close friend from fantastic beast and tell me you don't think polar express slash christmas music because it does it just sounds it's like the the gentle bells and magical sound of this soundtrack and it just sounds like christmas mm-hmm. it just sounds like christmas and and the sound design overall in this movie is phenomenal <laughs> um, the train what? sounds give me goosebumps. The train sounds. The I train sounds. Okay, wish literally. I've been on the team for sound design. Whew. I right? love the sound design of this film so much. I, I'm sorry, I'm gonna stop myself because we're already we're getting close to time. But just Save listen us. to the train, especially when it's not in motion. Mm, the steam hissing. The, the groaning hissing. of the train. The met- yes, oh. the metallic groaning of metal settling. Good they, grief. It's so they good. They had no business going as hard as they did on the sound design for the train. But you know what? Like, the train is a character. The, the train, train is, a character. is a character. Yes, it is. <laughs> you love when we have same brain moments like that? Because I do. <laughs> I just... Mm. I'm so glad you brought up the sound design because holy smokes, this film is so good with sound design. The, the two the two moments that I really that really stuck with me sound design wise, um, 
one is one that I don't think I would have noticed without being friends with you and appreciating sound design as much, but it's the conversation that they're having inside the locomotive itself, which is the the front of the train where the engine is. Mm -hmm. And it's the boy and the girl are talking and their voices are muffled and muted because the predominant sound in that scene is the sound of the locomotive chugging. Yeah. It's loud. And, and of the wheels chugging across the tracks and and everything. And it's they like they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to do that because you, they're having a conversation right then. She's telling him how the train works. And then later he's like questioning her and he's like, are you sure that's the break? And I have a whole thing about that we didn't even get into. We probably won't get to. But there's like there's important things that happen while they're talking inside the locomotive itself. But the predominant sound or at least the dueling sound is that of the chugging locomotive mm-hmm. and all of the components that go along with that. And they didn't have to do that, but they did because it's realistic. It's realistic because that is what you would hear. It's like when I talk about people, like the guys in Inception trying to have a conversation over the blades of a helicopter rotor. You can't have one because Mm -hmm. you can't hear anything. Mm -hmm. It's like that. That is what you would be hearing if you were trying to have a conversation with somebody inside the cabin of a locomotive. And I'm just like, they had no business. They had no business taking that scene that seriously. Academy Award again. Again. (laughs) Which is funny because, like, when I was doing my research for this episode, a lot of the articles I was seeing were from, like, 2019, 2020, 2021. Because people appreciate it now. No one appreciated it 10 years ago. It's in the last 15 years, not the first couple years it was out, it's in the years since that this has become a staple in households. One, because that's when Mm -hmm. it started airing on TV, on ABC Family. Yeah. You, You couldn't go a single day in December without seeing this pop up at least once. Right? right. My niece sent me a picture of her watching this the other day. My niece and nephew, hot chocolate is synonymous with me, apparently. And I know why, because <laughs> I remember us singing it in the kitchen and just dancing one time when I was babysitting them. And yes, mm. don't get me into the sound design of the hot chocolate scene, because that is incorrect, <sighs> but I'm going to let it go. Um, okay, but you know what? I'm like, I'm looking at this and I'm like, this would be, pr- this movie is primed for like a Broadway musical. Oh my gosh. Is How not? is it not yet? How is it not a Broadway musical yet? It would be perfect. Well, I'm just, anyway. So, um, and, and I agree with you that this movie has become popular. I think one of the other reasons is what we were talking about earlier is that there is an element of this movie that is geared towards adults. Right. And reminding them of not just like jokes that adults can get or writing that adults can get, but a feeling that adults need to be reminded of about the magic that they need to be aware of and remember in their everyday lives, you know? Right. Because that's the feeling that I was getting watching this. I'm watching this. I'm going, man, I need to, like, ignore some of the monotony of my everyday life and get out of that monotony and start re-appreciating some of the magic that exists in the everyday world. That's what this movie made me remember. And that's something that you don't get until you're an adult and remember what it felt like to be a kid and be experiencing magic on an everyday basis and being being engrossed and enthralled and and wondered by the world around you that you don't have when you're adult anymore because you feel like you've experienced everything you know nothing's new anymore and and that's what this movie makes me think is i like it just remembering the magic and remembering how to believe in magic it doesn't have to be santa just magic mm-hmm. you know wonderment not not being bogged down in day-to-day monotony that makes you forget how magical things can be. And this is I'm gonna this is me segueing into Studio Ghibli because you brought up something beautiful about <laughs> hold on. Uh, this has a point. This has a point. I believe it. The I believe reason it I love the Studio Ghibli films is because my favorite director director, Hayao Miyazaki, makes the monotonous look gorgeous. Beautiful. He makes the everyday mm. life Look so amazing, so beautiful. When I tell Things you, as simple as clouds scudding across the sky yeah, and grass rippling le- in the yeah, wind, yeah, and it's stuff like that where you can make the everyday look beautiful. I think that's that's art, right? That's art. Yes. There was a actually, I have I have a quote that I stumbled across, but it's a quote by Helena Bonham Carter that says, "I think everything in life is art. What you do, how you dress." the way you love someone and how you talk, your smile and your personality, what you believe in and all your dreams, the way you drink your tea, how you decorate your home or party, your grocery list, the food you make, how your writing looks and the way you feel. Life is art. Yeah. 
And I, like, in reading that, that is the same kind of feeling that I got from watching this movie or remembering that. And, and the same thing that Studio Ghibli films kind of embody is that your everyday existence and, and in just in general, everyday existence can be artistic. Can be magical. If you stop to appreciate it. Can be magical if you stop to appreciate you it. You just have to let and it be. And that's so true. Right. It, we, we get numb to it as adults. And I think that's why we are appreciating this movie so much over again, because that's what it reminds us of is, is magic. Man, I think that's how we have to end this episode. I think so too. Like it doesn't get any better than that. I think so. (laughs) Okay. Well, you know what, guys, that concludes our episode on the Polar Express. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you go watch it. Um, I hope everyone has an absolute Merry Christmas. That's what this episode was for, was for Christmas. I don't think there's a better movie that we could be talking about this weekend than the Polar Express. Um, Next week, Cherie is off, so I will be popping into your feed solo to give you your long-awaited review of the Hunger Games prequel movie, A Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, um, which you definitely don't want to miss. So make sure to be back here next Friday to tune in. Hold on one more moment. One more thing to add. I believe both of us are off the first week of January, though. And both of us are off the first week of January. So nobody texts me, where are you guys? Because I'm going to tell you, listen to the end (laughs) of this podcast. Leave us alone. We're taking a break. It's the new year. Take a week off, man. Go back and listen to Cinematic Pulse from the beginning. Oh, my gosh, Or go watch all the movies we talked about. Yeah, you know what? That's a great idea. Go catch up on the things you haven't watched yet. Come back to us. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Love you guys. Roll credits. Cinematic Pulse is edited and produced by Cherie Jackson. The episodes and theme are written and performed by yours truly. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and you can find Cinematic Pulse on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Please consider supporting us by becoming a member of our Patreon, where you can get access to show notes, vote on our upcoming episodes, and get exclusive downloads of our episode art. Thank you so much for listening, because we just checked your cinematic pulse.